Welcome to Reframe the Podcast, helping you reframe your thought patterns, habits, and mindsets to create the life that you want to lead. In today's episode, I am honoured to be chatting with Gillian Burke, who you will know from Autumn Watch, Spring Watch, and Winter Watch. Gillian is a biologist, a presenter, public speaker, voiceover artist, writer, and mother. Gillian is passionate about storytelling and science. Gillian's desire to have the unseen, the misunderstood, the unheard stories told is what drives her work. Seeking, as she describes herself, to help change the world so she can kick back on a plastic-free beach with an earth-friendly beer and not work so hard. Today, we are chatting about everything and anything health-related and our relationship with the natural world, how that impacts how we feel, how we eat, and how we interact with it. So without further ado, here is our chat. Hi, Jill, and thank you so much for joining us today at Reframe. I really appreciate your time. Um, And I think it would be great if we could just start, because obviously you will be a familiar face for many from Winterwatch and your work there, um, but that's not all you do, and that's not necessarily where you have initially come from, your background. So I just wondered if you could fill everyone a little bit more about who you are and what it is exactly that you do. Oh, well, listen, first of all, thanks for asking me. Um, I'm really excited to do this, actually, because I love the opportunity to talk about my interests and actually more than just interests, like experiences, things, you know, the way I see life, the way I live life, um, just outside of that, I guess, you know, that role that I don't know how many people, (laughs) I always imagine like when I'm on, like when I'm doing Spring Watch and we're live, I just pretend that nobody's watching because then it makes the whole thing a lot easier. So I sort of come off air and I come, you know, go into my little life, normal life and get really surprised when people go, oh, you know, we saw you or whatever. Hopefully it's always nice, you know, <laughs> anyway. So, um, yeah, so thanks so much. Um, like you say, I mean, that's that's one of my many hats, you know, um, being a presenter on that show. Um, weirdly, like I came to that role really late in life. I don't think it's a sort of career sort of, you know, curveball that you take or make or throw or get sent. I'm not quite sure which one you Mm -hmm. want to call it, but, you know, sort of, you know, kind of when I really started that, I was sort of, yeah, 42. So that was quite late, you know, to the party as it were. Um, So I've obviously lived a bit before all of that. And um, I mean, I'd say, I know it sounds like such a cliche, but it is genuinely the most important job I do, which is being a mum trying to raise two people, you know, two humans and to bring them up in a world that, you know, gosh, 2020 is like shown us like, is very change, you know, changing fast and a future that we're not really sure what we're even preparing for and trying to raise kids in that and raise kids mm-hmm. who are, you know, I hope, you know, although I have a feeling they're, you know, early teens already, so I've lost complete control. But anyway, hopefully, you know, they, they grow up to be, you know, just good people. That's, as much as I will ever ask of them. Um, So good, imperfect people, you know, like everyone. Um, So that's like the most important job I do, but you know, other stuff um, and it's how we've made this connection actually through, through Jimmy, your brother and co-founder. Well, I don't know why I'm telling you that, you know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
yes, let me tell you, Rose. Uh, yeah, you know, the you know the other things that I do are outside of work. I, you know, I power lift, um, or I used to power lift. I haven't done that since lockdown, but I train. And you know, Jimmy's someone who, um, with, with the work that he does um, as a PT, that's been a really amazing thing and very consistent now for almost seven years. I've been training mm. with him and his team, and. Um, so you know that's a really important part of my life is just fitness and strength training and all that kind of stuff which i always think surprises people because i don't look like someone who has you know gone and participated in like powerlifting competitions and people go really you you know because i look like i could probably break you know i think sometimes um, so that's, that's something I do, but actually, you know, if I had to pull all the threads of what I do together, um, the, the single most important thing, and it's been the way I've thought since I was probably about four or five, um, is kind of this question about the way we live and how we impact the world around us and how the world around us impacts us. Um, and I probably obviously would not have said that four or five years old, but, you know, quite genuinely, I was, I was born in Kenya and um, I was born at a time, you know, with all the wonderful benefit of hindsight now, that was the beginning of this kind of slide or, you know, nosedive maybe for some people into some big issues and some, you know, they get separated out. There's a climate crisis here and the ecological crisis here and the mass extinction here and, you know, social societal breakdown and all these things in a pandemic. And actually, like, if you kind of cast back to the seventies and beyond and beyond and beyond, I mean, these things kind of were brewing and building up. And I felt like I was born into a family for all sorts of reasons, had like a really high level of awareness um, around, you know, things to do with environment and um, social justice. I mean, these are words now that are bandied about a lot. We didn't use those, those terms back then. Um, you know, it, it was just about like, can things just be a little bit more fair, um, which sounds naive, but there you go. And that's kind of how I felt as a child. And, you know, I, I really set out with this sense of like, I want to make a world a better place. And then I got laughed at when I said that because it just sounded painfully naive and it still does. But that feeling has not left me ever. So I've kind of started to just say it out loud now, you know, because I'm like, I don't know what to do with that feeling because that's what motivates me. If I do anything else that's not aligned with that, it doesn't work for me, you know? I don't feel good in myself. So, mm. so that's me. <laughs> no, and it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to hear you speak that because I think so many of us um, don't know, even later in life, what our values are and what those beliefs are. And then when we can't live a life that's aligned to those, exactly as you articulated then, it's almost like something, and it's funny, I had a conversation with someone yesterday along the same lines. I said, if I find myself in a situation or I find myself making choices that don't feel aligned, no matter how naive someone thinks that is, or you're too this, you're too, you know, you think too, not, you know, too nice, too caring, too worried about the world, you know, all of those things it's almost like a physical, this, it feels like there's something physically uncomfortable inside. It's, yeah, just as you said. So, and I think with age, as you say, I think, do you agree, do you think with age, it's become easier to articulate 
and say it out loud now and say that these are my values this is this is who I am and this is where I'm aligned or do you think that's something that's always been quite straightforward for you I think you're right I think yeah it has become easier to say out loud I used to so I had sort of when I was really little you know and I'm saying like before I was 10 years old that was not a problem and no one seemed to challenge that and I think maybe because there was a sense at least people around me were like oh that's what children say and maybe there was a sense of like when she grows up she'll find out and um and then I remember really clearly I was probably in my early 20s um talking to uh gosh it's gonna be like a very convoluted my ex-husband's ex-stepfather <laughs> um really great guy really just you know charismatic very funny very knowledgeable who's an American he is an American um and you know sort of very active during the civil rights uh, movement of the 60s, actually walked, you know, with Martin Luther King Jr. And I remember saying to him, like, this is what I feel, you know, I wanna do in my life is I wanna make the world a better place. And it, I don't know if he meant to be like disparaging of that, but he challenged that as something that was, well, you know, there's always gonna be crap in the world. There's always gonna be, you know, and it really felt like, you know, I honestly, like, I, I kind of feel bad, like, dropping in it, because, you know, I don't think this was his intention, but the way I received it was definitely, like, yeah, let go of that, you know, and, you know, like, reality, you know, there's a part of me that's, like, yeah, clearly, you know, you're not going to fix everything, not you, not, like, a lot of people, like, there's always going to be challenges and stuff, but I guess what I've come round to um, at this point in my life is, if I don't believe that's possible, or at least if I don't believe that's a worthy motivation in life, then what, <laughs> yeah. how do you keep going? Cause I, you know, I, my experience of life is it gets harder as you get older. Um, it doesn't mean you don't enjoy it, but there are always challenges. So for me, that sort of feeling of like, this is why I do what I do. And I'm not waiting for the results to be happy in my life, but, um, if that's what basically is my kind of magnetic north, guides my compass, my sort of, you know, how I, whether I'm going to say yes or no to a job, whether I'm going to say, you know, how am I going to handle the situation? And I can tell you, I don't always get it right. But, you know, like personal stuff, you know, then I'm like, okay, is this, is this the same, is this the same vibe, you know, I'm trying to put out mm. in the world. And um, so it's just, maybe it's just a way of, um, maybe it's a survival strategy, actually, now that I've thought about it. It's like, you just got to keep believing it's possible, you know? Yeah. So that's maybe that's the way I get through. <laughs> no, and, and it's purpose, isn't it? We just to wake up with intention and purpose every single day. Thinking this morning, whilst I was getting dressed, I was thinking about how, you know, you're a huge advocate for climate change and the environment and the change we can make and the choices we can make every day in our own lives to be you know collectively be doing something and I was thinking about our work at reframe and diet culture and from my point of view I kind of like hop on my soapbox around the patriarchy a lot and the fact that you know I think diet culture keeps women really small and all of those things actually I was thinking about it from an environmental point of view this morning and I was thinking actually diet culture because it feeds this obsession with aesthetic and self-objectification and creating this particular way of looking and being actually it's part of the it's part of feeding commercialism and the buying of stuff and 
our need to have and our need to, you know, yeah, have all those things. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I hadn't made that connection before. That's, yeah. I mean, I probably, you know, so the, the, the where these two things meet or, you know, the, where your thinking space meets my thinking space mm. is interesting, isn't it? Mm. Because um, there's all sorts of things going on at that junction. Um, so I think you're right. A lot of it, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, so I'm just kind of going with my yeah, personal yeah. relations and experiences and stuff. But I would agree with you that um, the kind of, you know, the cult of like, you know, the image and, you know, how highly tuned people's sensibilities are around, even like what your eyebrows look like, you know, yeah. and, you know, I mean, the eyebrow thing, let's face it. Um, you know, it, it's next level, right? You know, I remember sort of, so I'm going to go off on a tangent about eyebrows, no, but do, do, do. I, remember, I remember sort of like, you know, I've all, you know, because of the age I'm at, like I've always had that nice, like, you know, high arch, clean, you know, very thin eyebrows. And um, just at the point I was about to embrace like this boy brow thing and go for the whole thing. Um, I remember seeing like, um, I think it was like Vogue or something like that. Um, and it was a cover of Rihanna and on it, she had like what I describe as these pencil kind of Sophia Loren style penciled in like thin eyebrows. And I just thought, that's it. I'm not touching my eyebrows ever again. Because <laughs> I can't keep up with this. So, I mean, that's just a silly example, but I think you're right. You know, um, some of it is, a lot of it will be fueled by this machine, which is, you know, keep, keep buying stuff, update, upgrade, you know, the latest look, the latest this. Um, I mean, for me, diet and, and sort of that sort of body image personally has been an interesting journey because when I was a teenager, I just was like stick thin. I was so painfully thin and it didn't matter what I did. I was really sporty, you know, I mean, I was like track and field and volleyball and basketball and field hockey. Um, I just was always doing something and I danced. I, was, I was, did ballet like from the age of five till I was in my mid twenties. So, but I ate like all the time and not because I was thinking about it, it's because I needed to. Like I couldn't get home without stopping and I hate to admit it, but there you go, like a Mickey D's. And, um, and I would just wolf down like, you know, a cheeseburger, large fries, and then get home, open the fridge, guzzle down a liter of, of orange juice. I remember exactly what I used to eat. Then would like reach in, usually it was a block of cheddar cheese, eat that, and then maybe do a bit of homework. And then my, my folks would come home. My dad was the one who did all the cooking. He would cook up a massive meal, like real traditional kind of Kenyan food um, or Creole food actually. And then eat that probably two or three helpings sometimes, go to sleep, wake up hungry and, you know, and repeat. But I was super skinny. And I kind of laugh now because back then I had the body that probably people think would be the, I don't even know what, you know, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really, really skinny. But back then it wasn't that attractive to be that skinny because there was like Cindy Crawford and Linda Evangelista and they're beautiful women. And, you know, compared to sort of, I think maybe towards the nineties and noughties, there was like this kind of, everyone got really super skinny. Um, and I guess with time, and as I see every decade pass, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, what I'm now noticing is, oh, this is a fashion. 
these are just like fads. And how do you keep up with this? It's a bit like the eyebrows. Um, so yeah, I think the relationship between uh, this, this like chasing this constantly moving target that, you know, this ideal that you never quite get to because as soon as you think you're there, it's moved. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like I just didn't really get into that because, and thank God, because for me, I guess sports was my ticket. And it became more important to me to be able to do the sports I did well. And so I just was like, engine, fuel, engine, fuel. And that was the relationship. Um, and I pretty much, you know, you know my, my thing is that I'm a happy eater. So I'll eat when I'm, life is good. And I cannot eat when I'm under major stress. Um, so that's my sort of thing with food is that I like literally my stomach just if, what it feels like it just goes into a little tight knot and it's not letting anything in and it's really like crazy you know um, how I've noticed that you know like really stressful times in my life that you know wow okay that my body just goes into like permanent fight flight freeze mode, mode and just won't accept any food um, which is you know, you can maybe get through like that for a while, but it's obviously not a great strategy for life. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, wow. Yeah, I'm not sure I answered your question there, the relationship with the environment. <laughs> no, but, but you <laughs> but did. Consumerism, yes, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, just kind of dropping into a bit of sort of, I guess what my background is in terms of my kind of professional presenter hat. As a biologist, I'd say that, you know, there is um, a definite link between our like health, human health and soil health. Um, I mean, I say soil health because I could talk about vegetables and the meat you eat and everything else, but actually everything begins in the soil. And, um, and soil biology is like one of those things, it's like, man, how do you get people excited about like, you know, the earth, <laughs> earth you know? Um, but like it's a whole ecosystem it's a whole habitat it's like a whole world and within a world within a world and there is this incredible community of microscopic organisms that you know the way I like to imagine it it's like a bustling kind of three-dimensional space where there's tunnels and highways and super highways where nutrients and water flowing and really complex chemical like polymers that help to bind the soil structure and a healthy soil what's really interesting about it is that like almost anyone will know the smell of a healthy soil it's just that smell that you get when you walk through a woods like just after it's rained and it's that slight it's not an unpleasant smell but it's like a sweet slight and musty smell it's very hard to describe and that's the smell of like healthy earth, you know, when there's a thriving community in it. And our bodies kind of need elements of that, you know, we are like our bodies are the same in a sense. We are a thriving community of bacteria. Um, and if we are not receiving, it, it's like it works in tandem. You know, all these systems are so much more connected than even like, you know, the last five, 10, 15 years, biologists have made such amazing inroads into how everything is connected. Um, so even just from like a really basic biology sense, and it's not basic biology, but what I mean is 
you know, for just looking at purely scientific, so we'll move this the consumerism and the capitalism and this and that out of the way and just go, ooh, healthy soil means healthy human. Um, you know, dead, overworked, over-fertilized soil, not so healthy human. And it's, kind, it's as simple a relationship as that. So it's kind of where we start with how we farm, both, you know, uh, livestock and agriculture, and therefore what we eat and put in our bodies is all connected. So yeah, massive connection there. In your opinion, where do we start then? You know, someone who wants to do all those things, you know, I want to make an effort to be supporting the environment better, but I also want to be supporting my health. Um, you know, where, where could someone begin? Where could they start that journey? Yeah, it's a great question because I think even, you know, when I'm just talking about environment, it's such an overwhelming yeah kind of um the challenges are overwhelming so it sometimes feel like oh man where do i start that all these things and i think actually you know it's it's um it's probably the most like powerful meaningful and you know in terms of like um i was going to use an expression it's probably not entirely appropriate i'm trying to think of another one um but bang for buck basically yeah, um, yeah. you know it's it's like yeah, starting with what food you buy or grow and then put in your body is really like fundamental. Like how we farm and how our food is produced is a huge part of like the disruption to ecological ecosystem, but also the disruption to human health. Like the two are kind of the same thing. They're just symptoms showing up in different ways. Mm. Um, so you know, one of my biggest um, bugbears is the late, like, you know, the association that's made certain labels. So like organic food, um, I feel kind of pushes a lot of people away, just the thought and the sound of it, because it sounds like really wholesome and it sounds really unattainable and it is really expensive. Yeah. And, um, and it just pushes people away because like, I, I'm like, I get that. Like I've got a really good inner saboteur who, you know, when I'm trying to get on like a nice healthy tip, it is just there going, mm, okay, I know what you're trying to become, but you know, I'm going to make sure. <laughs> so I want to work hard against that, you know. Um, actually, I'll come back to that because it's when you find the right, as you say, motivation, then the work, it's not hard work. But um, so yeah, what you put, what you eat, is really important um and i don't necessarily mean like oh you need carbs you need i don't know you know don't eat meat eat meat i don't know you know like i genuinely i'm in a position that i'm like like who am i to tell what people what people should eat I, I mean who am i to say um the thing that i that that helped me find my connection with what i believe is a good connection with food is um so i said earlier that my dad was the one who did all the cooking right because mm -hmm. my mom could not and still cannot cook and she'd have no problem be saying this i don't know how she has gotten through life you know she's in the 80s now and still really can't cook so dad um was the one who did all the cooking and he was a really good cook thank god but he learned to cook from his grandmother who was a creole station was so he learned to cook in a way that was really kind of old school you know and he just held on to that so by the time we showed up, I mean, my parents had a, me and my brother quite late in life. By the time we showed up, you know, he was very, very suspicious 
of processed food, except corned beef. Weirdly, he loved it. But anyway, apart from corned beef. Um, <laughs> um, and like, you know, he would never buy, if, if he was going to buy chicken, you'd never buy like a chicken in a, in a supermarket or something. You know, it was always like, I'm going to go and, you know, find like a farmer, like even it wasn't even called farmer's market there. It was like whole food, whole, um, what do you call it? Wholesale food markets, like places where restaurants would go to get, you know, stuff in bulk. And he would go there and hassle them for like, you know, I don't need like two tons of chicken. I just need one, you know, and he would bring it home. So he was really, really skeptical, very suspicious of processed food. And somehow that kind of carried, that sort of handed down to me. And I think it's because of my dad, he's just had this like very old fashioned, because he was, he's born in 1930, kind of like, he's just very suspicious of anything that wasn't, didn't look like it was when it was either walking or on the tree or whatever. So maybe that's another way of look, looking at organic food without calling it organic food, is does it look like food? And, and actually for a lot of people that, you know, they're so far that like that, this connection with where your food comes from and how it's produced is so big now that I think a lot of people struggle to answer that question. And, um, you know, I sort of, the question that really like bugs me is why is it more expensive to buy a bag of organic potatoes covered in mud than it is to buy the equivalent weight of um, processed oven ready chips? I don't understand. I don't understand how you can, you know, all the inputs like, you know, the fertilizers, the pesticides are going into growing. So all of that, all the processing, peeling of the potato, the chipping it, the packaging, the, the branding of the packaging, da, 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 and all the kind of whatever processing is done to make this thing that you can just put in the oven, you've got chips. How is that still cheaper? I don't, you know, I really find that really interesting. Yeah. And it creates food privilege yeah that's what it does it creates mm. food privilege and then it keeps those options for those who are privileged i'm aware that health you know we tend to forget about those socioeconomic determinants of health and is exactly that you know if you can't afford a car and you can only walk to the local shop and the local shop are selling a bag of potatoes versus a bag of chips and you've got 30 quid to feed your three kids that week mm -hmm. exactly yeah it's a it's a exactly. it you know and that comes back to policy and all of those kind of things and you know health inequalities and everything that i could bang about bang on about for a really long time but you said something there and i wonder whether or not um you will agree with this you know about your dad coming home and he cooked every night and food did it play a central part in your family life, like bringing everyone together? Because, you know, with our obsession with processed food, I think has come this kind of mindset that eating is, it's a duty. It's another thing we fit in, in between all the other stuff we try and get done in a day. And there's, you know, we've, we've gotten that actually eating is something we do to connect and it's something we do to share and it's something we do as a family and it's something that brings us all together. And I think, we've come to kind of reach for the ready meal and reach for the processed cheese string to meet an energy need because it's the thing we do because we have to. And that's kind of that, I think there's a, there's a mindset, there's a distortion there that perhaps we didn't used to have in the past. I mean, you know, when you and I were growing up, 
you know, we did all sit down for dinner. We did all sit down for a Sunday roast, but now we're just obsessed with filling, 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 filling our time. Um, I think it's so much there, definitely, that, um, you know, that kind of, I, I would agree with for sure. Um, I think a big thing was my dad did domestic, he's, like he did it dad stuff. So, you know, he never had that sense of like, oh, I've got to cook the dinner again. You know, there wasn't like, no, you know, this is ceremony. And actually more than that, like he acted like a head chef, you know? So it wasn't like he was in the kitchen peeling potatoes while we were all like, he's like, right, you're peeling garlic, you're doing this. And he would be like orchestrating. And he would get my brother and myself like involved in cooking. So my job was generally, um, cause like the kind of the Creole style of cooking is like the base is always ginger, garlic, onions. You just, whatever you're gonna cook, you know you gotta start peeling garlic like till the cows come home. So that was my job. And um, so yeah, ginger, garlic and onions, whatever happened, I knew that was what I was doing at some point in my evening. And because, you know, it was that dad style, daddy parent, you know, daddy daycare kind of thing. He's like, this isn't an option. This isn't like, oh, come and cook with me. This is like, you've got a job to do because we've all got jobs to do because your mom is out. Because actually my dad, especially, you know, sort of as I was a teenager, he's a bit older than my mom. So he kind of like retired and was a stay at home dad, which is really quite revolutionary for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom was the one out working. So he had this whole thing of like, right, you know, your mother is out there. And when she comes home, this, you know, this has to be done. And partly because she couldn't cook as well, of course. But um, So that was a big part of it, is that cooking became an activity that we just did. But then what happened is while we were cooking, in that sort of sideways way that, you know, I guess guys do, exchange stories. He'd tell us about things that he did when he was young. And my dad was a real raconteur. He could tell a story. So it actually became like, I I would not have thought that then. I just thought I was peeling onions and garlic, right? It was definitely a bonding experience. The stories and the laughs. And he was like, oh, he was a taskmaster. You know, he would like really, um, he was so pernickety about everything. Oh, no, no, no. You don't stir like that. You stir like that. You know, he was, it was not like, oh, you know, fun, fun, fun. You know, he he worked us hard. But at the same time, like we had fun doing it because we, talked we exchanged stories and then by the time mom come, came home it was like you eat and then we'd all sit around the table and eat and blah 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 um i mean you know our family had its own you know version of dysfunction don't get me wrong so it wasn't all like you know the waltons or something but um that's showing my age with that reference um but um but that was a really important part is food preparation and just knowing that there was a time of the day that that's what happened and I think I'm probably still conditioned to do that because I, you know, I'm a single parent now and I, you know, juggle a lot of stuff, but I still feel like that's what I do in the evening. It's like, so I still mostly cook. I mean, obviously there are days when we'll just get like a ready meal. There are days when we get takeout, you know, I don't think yeah. there's any shame. It's life. That's life. <laughs> yeah, there are days where I'm just like, you know, I'm done. Like, I don't yeah. even know what to cook today. You guys, you know, stuff. So, um, but no, fundamentally, though, I don't feel good when we've, you know, I'm like, okay, we got through. Today was one of those days. And then actually, it's not that I don't feel like, I don't feel like bad, but I'm just like, I, it's a different type of satisfaction. It was like, I got to work around today. So that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. At least I acknowledge that it was a step too far today to cook. But I love it. The days when I have that time 
to cook and there's nothing you know like I literally just cook lentils and rice sometimes you know just because it's a quick meal kids love it it's healthy it's done and it's cheap (laughs) so um yeah so all that stuff is really important and I'll tell you what there's a funny little story as well about meal times and you know gosh I tell you someone who works on tv I feel really guilty about this but um my grandma's were from Seychelles so we'd go to Seychelles for holidays and to see them and um so this was not like you know going to some boutique hotel this was like you know the the backyards of Seychelles and um and then Seychelles like I think right into the 80s into the late 80s actually um TV would start about five and then it would stop at seven it would just go off air the one channel and it would go off air for about an hour so that everyone could sit down and have dinner and then it would restart at eight and they'd play the national anthem and they would gather around to watch, you know, like Dallas or something, you know? Um, and that was it. And then it would go off air for the rest of the night. And so, you know, it was like this, this thing, they were like, oh no, we've got to stop. We'll take, we'll go off air so people can have their dinner and then we'll come back. And I was like, wow, you know, imagine that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Now I'm texting my 14 year old, will you appear for dinner? Because I know I can get hold of him that way. And that, I mean, what are your thoughts about as, you know, as a mum, what are your thoughts about the next generation and the pressures that they're under? Oh, deep breath. (laughs) It's a big one. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's really hard. Because I, you know, that, that literally just plays into all my kind of like, ah, fears. I, you know, one thing I would say is the, in the face of all the kind of images and the things they're trying to live up to, um, you know, and I was, where was I hearing? There's this kind of new, new version of like body dysmorphia, which, um, Oh gosh, it was a document Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, which is a must watch, by the way. Um, but they talked about how, you know, plastic surgeons um, are now being asked to try and it's called like Snapchat filters, you know, so people want to look like they do on a Snapchat filter. And and they're asking plastic surgeons to kind of enhance the way they look. It's a thing, apparently. I only heard about this from this this documentary about um, so that's pretty scary. I'm going to do like positive spin here because I could go down that wormhole if (laughs) that myself, but there are some really positive things as well, because there's also access to a bigger variety of images, depending on Mm. the kind of um, digital ecosystem that you are in. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really love is, you know, real mainstream artists, Lizzo, um, Billie Eilish, you know, I just look at these young women and I'm like, wow, because they really embrace this idea of like, you know, be yourself and your whole self. Um, and what I notice, like, even with um, personalities like Maya Jama, like, yes, yeah, she can look, whoa, amazing, but she'll also post pictures of her, like, just out of bed or when she's like, you know, got like food poisoning or something. So I do think, you know, that there are personalities out there that really try and be honest about, you know, the days they've got like the full makeup treatment and the days when they're really feeling like crap. And, um, and I do, so I think, you know, there are real beacons out there to kind of clip into and let, let yourself be those, you know, let them be your anchors. Um, 
I mean, personally, what I've found is as I got into powerlifting, the, I started following loads of powerlifting accounts, you know, got totally obsessed. And I started to notice um, like a shift in, I know it's going to sound so weird, so just go with it. <laughs> but I noticed a shift in the kind of women I would look at. You know, and you know how we do that as women, you know, we like, we'll sort of notice like, oh, what you're wearing, what you're doing, the hair is doing this. And I would notice, I would start to notice women that are really strong looking. So not like archetypal, like tall, very thin model, but like big, strong women. And I was just like, whoa, you know, and I'll be like, yes, that's, you know, that's what I like to see, you know. And I started getting really kind of like, oh, look, there's this whole different aesthetic that I've not accessed before because I've not been into this particular sport that, oh, you know, that's really interesting. And I just found it like, it was just an interesting observation to make of myself that if I feed my mind a different image, then it shifts and recalibrates what I think is, is something that I want to aspire to. And that's me, grown woman, you know? So I just thought, wow, so how does that work with my daughter, for example, who, you know, um, is just becoming like, you know, just entering the world of like being on social media and all that stuff. I've held them back for as long as I could. And, um, and one of the things that I love is because she's very sporty, is, you know, she's like, she has really different, like her icons are like Simone Biles. And uh, recently we were watching because she's getting into like, she was interested in basketball and like, oh, you know, so I was like, oh, let's like find some basketball women and women and, you know, WNBA basketball players. And we were looking at um, Taya Cooper's account and she is just such an amazing woman. And, you know, my, my daughter was like those. And I was like, yes, you know, if you can kind of feed, oh God, it sounds awful, but expose better than feed. Yes. Um, expose as a, like a, huge diversity of images if I think that's the way to kind of like push back on any kind of getting funneled down just wanting to look like one type of person and I mean you know that it's like you know the buzzword of, of the year is diversity inclusivity that's why it's important and it's like literally you know you want to see all shapes and sizes and colors and representations of as many different versions of human as possible because then it just balances out. And then you kind of, hopefully, what you then can do is be yourself, you know, and, you know, your healthiest self, which is basically, does my body do what I ask of it as, as well as is equipped to do, you know? Um, that's about as good as it gets, I reckon, you know, for health, a healthy body. Yes. And as a mum, I, yeah, your approach is exactly that. I try and get my girls I've got uh, well, I've got a 14 year old I have an 11 almost 12 year old and 10 in a couple of weeks wow and they um yeah trying to help them diversify the images that they're exposed but even as you say as a grown adult that connection you make between looking between that kind of that ideal that you're sold all the time you know that uh, you know big tits little waist peachy ass mm -hmm. all of that and actually looking at women for what they can do. And I think it's that, it's that shift. It's also showing um, girls and boys, because I, I think we're seeing boys more and more present with kind of fitspo body dysmorphia around muscular structure and so forth. Um, 
showing, trying to shift that conversation um, away to role models who are showing what their bodies can do. This is what yeah. your body could do. This is the vehicle for living this really full life. This isn't the, it isn't an aesthetic by which your worth is measured. Mm-hmm. And that kind of shift, and as you say, trying to, because social media can be a really positive thing. I think as parents, we can be really fearful of it, really fearful, but actually it can be a really positive and inspiring place. But you know, I, it's kind of, it's interesting. Like I, I also, I sometimes feel really bad. Like when I, you know, I'm like seeing like in a way it's like, well, then people, you know, I mean, I was that person. I could not, I, my body would not be anything other than it was. I mean, the worst thing is like really flat chested, stick thin teenage girl that was like really gangly and really dorky. Um, and it was just like, there was nothing that was going to change that, you know? I mean, I, I, not that I even tried to, but I did feel really self-conscious of it. And the thing that actually made me the most self-conscious was in sport and I remember people always assuming that I was weak because I was thin and then I believed I was weak because I was thin yeah and people say they go like oh gosh your wrists look like you're just gonna break you know if I pick something up and so I started to believe that and you know just just kind of bring it back full circle about you know the connection between Jimmy you know that training and you know my journey with fitness wild which is the other hat that he wears um has been massive. I mean, honestly, like not in a sort of like body transformation way, although that's really fine as well. But I mean, like for me, it's like the knowledge, my self-knowledge has, you know, I did not know that I was as strong as I am. I didn't know I could lift the things I can lift. And that Mm -hmm. is like what I love about the way they do things. It's functional strength. And, you know, the sort of like in my mid forties now to feel like I can still like my body will still do what I ask of it is just like I am forever daily grateful for that you know because I don't take that for granted um and it yeah it's it's just been such a blessing but you know that that sort of when I look at that journey that I've made and one that I never really kind of you know it was never like a headline it was never at the front of my mind in terms of like my body and blah, blah, blah. You know, I had, there were other things that bothered me, but not that. Um, but like, I look back and I go, yeah, I had a, a self-belief, a limiting self-belief that I was weak. That was yeah. that. And a limiting self-belief that I couldn't sprint because I was thin and I didn't have the, the muscles to like power my levers. So, you know, there were things like that that I just took as red and I didn't realize that, well, actually you gotta, you know, if you want to get strong, you got to, do put a little bit into that to get back what you're asking your body to do it, it, you know it will adapt it will lead you know it will you got to lead it to what you're asking it to do and and put in the work a bit so um you know that's that's been such a revelation and i hope that you know that just by osmosis you know that my my kids because for me like training is like my self-care that's the thing i prioritize and um, I hope that just simply by that they've seen that, you know, through some pretty tough times, you know, like the last five years, they've seen that no matter what, that's what I do. And they've seen that, like, it centers me. I'm always like, you know, if I can train, I'm good. And, you know, I don't necessarily 
expect them to do exactly what I do, but I just hope there's something there that, you know, just yeah. brushes no. off a bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, I I, yeah. Okay. And yeah. they will, and at the moment, as they're tweens and teens, they kind of like push back, don't they, a little bit against, they're trying to separate their sense of identity mm. from being tied to us as mum. And, mm. um, but I'm exactly the same. I think as I, you know, if I get up in the morning and I do some yoga or I meditate or I work with weights or whatever, I think, I hope that my kids see it and they see it for, and I always talk about it in terms of I feel strong, I feel well i have energy or mum's stress i'm going to go work out because it helps me feel less stressed mm. as you say exactly by osmosis it will yeah it will find its way into their psyche and set them up for a healthy relationship with uh, with their bodies yeah. i hope so well, yeah. and if you had an opportunity to stand on top of the mountain and speak to the world Jill. What would, what's the one thing you would want everybody to, to, to hear and to know and to take on board if they could go away with one thing? What do you oh my God. Be? It doesn't have to be one. No one ever gives me one. It's always a bit more than one. You know what? That is like <laughs> the best question and the worst question as yes. well. You're like, really? Oh my gosh. It's a bit like, oh, I never met my grandfather. My grandfather died long before I was born. And I remember having this dream that I was walking with him in, um, like a grove it's so I could still I was a kid then and I was just holding his hand and he was like telling me what life meant you know like everything like the secret of life and um and I woke up and I was like Ooh, you know bear in mind my family like you know we're all sort of you know even though we're like no we don't believe that stuff we are superstitious so you know that kind of thing when you dream of dead people is not good or is it good I don't know it's a message right anyway so so I go down to breakfast. I'm like, oh, I've grown to grandpa. And they're like, really? And, and, and they're like, oh, yeah, he was telling the secret of life or something like that. And they said, so what did he say? And I was like, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> to the, I live this day. I can't remember. So I feel this is my moment. Like I'm stood on the mountain. Like, ah, yes. I know there's something. Grandpa, was, grandpa told me. Now, where is it? Where is it? <laughs> That's going me on the mountain. Um, give me a moment. Um, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to say what I try and live by, which is just, you know, make the world a better place, you know? I know it sounds so naive, but if we all just did one little bit to try and do that, surely, you know? Be the change you want to see. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's cliche. I wish I could something come up with something better. But no, but, but <laughs> do you know what, Jill? I wish the world were full of jills oh don't <laughs> but don't i, I do as as a mom as a woman as a professional as all of those things i oh, yeah well jeez yeah. man that's that's oh thank you uh, you know but it's, a, it's very true but yeah thank you so much for joining us today we're about to swap another hat we're going to go into end of school run pick up hat and um, <laughs> start another part That's another job but thank you so much for your time today jill i really appreciate it oh you're welcome it's lovely thank, thank you. you thank you for tuning in and we hope you have taken something away from listening perhaps one small action you can put into practice today we would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode so pop on over to reframe club where you can share them your own reflections and experiences we would love to hear from you as always, here at Reframe Club, we are rooting for you.